0: Russia's Sputnik Radio, Radio Havana, Cuba, and NHK World Radio, Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Intense rains have caused floods and landslides, devastating parts of British Columbia. Several reviews of the COP26 Environmental Summit. In the aftermath, there was a focus on China and India's coal use, but there were many failures to change the status quo. Interviews with a Zimbabwean climate activist and a German Green leader. Every day for weeks now, the COVID crisis in Germany has worsened. Gaddafi's son has announced his candidacy for a presidency in Libya next month, along with the leader of the opposition military. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle.
1: Floods and landslides have devastated parts of Western Canada. A state of emergency has been declared in the province of British Columbia, and the military has been sent in to help. Authorities have confirmed one death after torrential rains and mudslides destroyed roads and left several mountain towns isolated.
2: Was it a success or was it a failure? The outcome of the UN's latest climate conference in Glasgow will depend on whom you ask. Countries did agree to revisit their emissions cutting targets and they appeared to pave a clear path to a global reduction in coal use, but not the firm exit desired by many. Now, the agreement is also likely to be hobbled by weaknesses that have plagued past deals, no enforcement methods and unclear language. Images of Tuvalu's foreign minister up to his waist in water went viral last week. To underline the urgency of the climate crisis, Simon Coff gave a waterlogged speech from what used to be dry land, a nation of remote islands, one of Tuvalu's nearest neighbours is Australia, and one of Australia's top exports is coal. Tuvalu wants Australia and countries like it to commit to more ambitious reduction targets.
1: I also acknowledge the the you know the the, the challenge that they have also in Australia uh, with with mining uh, playing a big part of the the, the economy, creating jobs. Uh, so I, I see it as a, as a dilemma that uh, Australia and other countries face. Um, you have, you know, your immediate economic interests that you have on one hand, and then you have the well-being of of, of the world and your your families, your neighbours that that uh, will suffer as a
2: result. Tuvalu and other at-risk countries are hoping the sun isn't setting on their hopes. They're angry that major polluters India and China negotiated down a key phrase in the COP26 agreement about coal from phasing out coal to phasing down. On Monday, the Chinese government pushed back, attempting to shift the blame to developed countries in the West. Many developing countries still do not have universal access to electricity and adequate energy supply. Before demanding countries end the use of coal, they should first consider the energy demand gap of these countries to ensure their energy security.
1: Environmental activists and developing nations have criticized the recent United Nations COP26 climate summit, calling it a failure. Experts say the pledges made fall far short of what's needed. And that global warming is still on track to exceed the critical 1.5 degrees Celsius limit set in 2015. While the final agreement reached by delegates from 190 countries at the weekend agreed only to phase down the use of coal rather than phasing it out completely, as originally was proposed. And moments ago, I spoke with Zimbabwean climate activist Natalie Mangondo, who explained why she was disappointed with the results of the COP26 summit.
3: I mean, you know, the Glasgow Climate Pact is a tiny watered-down step in the right direction, which is unfortunate because we didn't expect a tiny watered-down step. We expected huge strides to be made at this conference. Specifically, we expected progress to be made in terms of taking steps to end fossil fuel subsidies, phasing out and not phasing down coal, whatever that means, putting a price on carbon, as well as delivering and increasing the climate finance commitment, and specifically a climate finance commitment on loss and damage. And so while I understand the frustration, you know, it's a bit disingenuous to just blame the whole um, issue on China and India on the lack of progress made.
1: Nelly Mangondo there speaking moments ago to us. The COP26 climate conference in Glasgow with Lisa Bardem, who speaks on climate policy for the German Green Party. Welcome back, Ms. Bardem. Um, Let's talk about India. Why do you think India is facing such heavy criticism for watering down the language on coal when countries like Germany, for instance, emit four times as much carbon from coal per capita as India?
4: I think it's the task to reduce CO2 emissions of all countries, but especially uh, the big emitters. I mean, that's clear. And India could have had a more constructive role in all of that, but I also um, agree to you that Germany and Europe, they didn't deliver.
1: It does seem to have been the, the, the big countries, the developed countries like Germany and the US, who still seem unwilling to pay for the environmental damage. Uh, they've inflicted on the world for generations.
3: Clearly
4: there's, uh, there's been alignment between the developing countries not paying for the damages and not taking responsibilities and the unwillingness of developing countries to, to raise their ambitions. So I think we have to tackle those two questions uh, at the same time.
1: So Lisa Baden from uh, Germany's Green Party. German lawmakers have approved a package of measures to slow the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. This comes as the country hits another daily infection record with more than 65,000 new cases reported in the last 24 hours. Many of the new patients are unvaccinated. Hospitals are running out of bed space and staff are struggling with exhaustion. Germany's disease control agency, the Robert Koch Institute, is warning of a serious emergency this winter.
5: Pfizer has announced a deal to allow dozens of developing nations to make and sell its experimental COVID-19 treatment pill. Ireland is asking people to work from home again as it expands its booster program. COVID cases and hospitalizations are both on the rise there. And New York City will allow revelers back into Times Square for New Year's Eve celebrations, but only if they have proof of vaccination.
1: The son of the late Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi has announced his candidacy for next month's presidential election. Saif al-Islam was long considered his father's heir apparent until he was captured during the 2011 revolution. He was released in 2017. The election is aimed at moving the country towards democracy after a decade of conflict.
6: Libya's divisive commander Khalifa Haftar has announced that he will run for president. Haftar controls much of eastern Libya, casting doubt on whether there can be free elections if he is on the ballot. His
0: forces waged war on the west of the country during Libya's civil war following the overthrow of Colonel Qaddafi. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. Next, Sputnik Radio. George and Gayatri Galloway interviewed Scott Ritter, former Marine officer and chief UN weapons inspector. He discusses the Taliban in Afghanistan, how they came to be, and their struggle with the so-called Islamic State. Scott believes the US and other countries should release Afghan money Help the Taliban rebuild the country and fight back ISIS. He also talks about the situation in Iraq, where the government and military are controlled by the US
5: through the CIA. Sputnik Radio. Scott Ritter, a former US Marine Corps intelligence officer and United Nations weapons inspector joins us now. Let's talk first about Afghanistan, if we may. A lot of people thought the Taliban were our enemy, but it turns out now, the Taliban are the least of our worries.
6: You know, invading a country is never sound policy, um, especially when there's no legitimate national security reason to do so. But if you're going to invade a country, I think it's incumbent that you understand the nation that you're invading. I mean, why are you invading? What do you hope to achieve? In the case of Afghanistan, we were talking about not just regime change, getting the Taliban removed, but also um, regional transformation, nation building. We were going to change Afghanistan. The Taliban were evil. The way the Taliban were sold to the American public is these are a bunch of Islamic extremists. Uh, these are people who are seeking to impose Sharia law on the poor Afghan people, uh, when the reality is the Taliban was Afghanistan. Talib is short for student. The Taliban were simply Pashtun religious students that took a stand in 1996 against the uh, moral corruption that had taken hold in Afghanistan post-Soviet invasion, post-Civil War. They were called to duty by citizens who said, we're tired of our children, our women being abused by uh, these warlords uh, who simply feel they can set up a roadblock and kidnap people and know, do horrible things. So the Taliban started as a response to this and they mushroomed into a national movement, but it it's not a movement of Talib. It's a movement of Pashtun tribal entities. It was a coalition of Pashtun tribal elements that came together. And when we speak about the Taliban, we're really speaking about Pashtun tribal reality. I mean it, it is a deeply religious but also deeply tribal and deeply cultural a group of people. We never understood that. Uh, and so in getting rid of the Taliban, what we were really doing is getting rid of the Pashtun tribal ethos that held Afghanistan together. And in the struggle since then, where the Taliban, the Pashtun tribes, were seeking to reassert their legitimate authority over their country from a foreign occupier, a vacuum was created, a vacuum of leadership, a vacuum of cultural guidance, a vacuum of religious singularity. And, and, and in this vacuum, we get extremism. And what we see coming from that is, of course, what they call the uh, Islamic State, of Khorasan province, a group that's really, to be honest, uh, Islamic in name only. Uh, if you take a look, I mean, there's been studies made about uh, ISIS and up to 70 percent of their recruits have no clue what the Quran is.
5: If everything is relative in life, uh, I wouldn't like to live under the Taliban, uh, neither neither would my wife. Uh, but I'd rather live under the Taliban than live under ISIS. That being so, uh, should your country and mine not be helping the Taliban government, therefore, to crush this ISIS uprising in their country? Absolutely. We, we should be. I'm not going to sit here and sing praises of the Taliban. I
6: mean, I will say this in their defence. When they came into power in 1996, they hadn't a clue what they were doing. Uh, they, they came into power uh, through the vehicle of a civil war, a nation in conflict, a nation that had been in continuous conflict for, at that time, nearly 30 years. And they didn't know how to govern. They had this model of Sharia law, which is basically the original version of Sharia law at the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, they're trying, trying to impose that unrealistically on a modern nation state. And there were problems, severe problems. So I'm not gonna defend them. Uh, but what I will say is this, in the 20 years that your country and my country have occupied that, that land and gone to war against its people, the Taliban have learned their lesson. They have learned what it takes to govern. They are governing today. Uh, you know, there was a shadow government of Taliban in most of the provinces in Afghanistan during the entire time we were there. They've been governing, they've been taxing, and they understand what's needed now to govern effectively in a modern nation state. They're not giving up their Islamic roots, but they are modernizing. These are people who are educated. uh, They understand they need investment, and to get investment, they need to have a world that doesn't reject them at a whim. The Taliban will succeed if given a chance, but right now they've, again, taken over a nation that's been at war for 40 years a nation that has been destroyed. The last 20 years been destroyed by your country and my country. Uh, we have created corruption. Uh, we've poured billions of dollars that have gone into corrupt warlords pockets. Uh, we have destroyed tribal cohesion. So we've created this vacuum in which these nihilists, these violent people who operate in the name of Islam, but who aren't Islamists, these ISIS-K people are now thriving. In order to destroy ISIS-K, The Taliban need to have a united nation behind them. They can't have this when we deny them access to their own money. There are billions of dollars today uh, of Afghan sovereign wealth sitting in banks around the world. The Taliban are the legitimate leaders of Afghanistan. They should be able to access this. We also destroyed their country for 20 years. We should be pouring in humanitarian aid in an effort to create stability in Afghanistan, to create good living conditions for the Afghan people who suffering is largely our responsibility, not the Taliban's responsibility. But we're not doing this because we're sore losers, because we can't handle the fact that these Pashtun tribal elements cleaned our clocks, wiped the field of battle with us.
3: Now, Scott, uh, let's uh, have a look at Iraq. It's been quite a uh, tumultuous and eventful week with an assassination on the prime minister by drone attacks on the back of uh, the recent elections. What's happening there? Are we anticipating a coup?
6: Well, you know, when you say a coup, I think we can't anticipate that there is serious objection inside Iraq today to a government, a system of government that's been imposed on the Iraqi people by an American occupation. Now, we can say, well, wait a minute, Scott, it's a it's a Shia government. You know, the Shia majority finally has a say. It's a Shia government that we pick. It's a Shia government handpicked by us. It's a Shia government whose ministries are governed by people that we've bought off. Every single minister in, in Iraq today is owned by the CIA. I'll say that one more time, just in case it didn't sink in. Every single minister in Iraq today is owned by the CIA, either directly or indirectly. They cannot function without CIA money. That's the reality of the Iraqi government today. Now, there are elements in Iraq that are trying to change this. Well, one of the biggest elements is, uh, is a Shia group led by Muqar al-Sadr, an Iraqi Shia, now cleric. Uh, he he actually uh, achieved, I believe, his Mujahid status. He got his degree. Uh, he's, he's in the process of developing a following. And some people say that he's in line to replace uh, the Ayatollah Sistani as the most significant religious leader Iraq today. One would say that that's probably a a process that's natural to Iraq. Uh, We're against this because we don't control Bukhdad al-Sadr. We also don't control the the Iranians. The Iranians have a heavy say in what's going on in Iraq today. Maybe they shouldn't. Iraq is a sovereign state. But, you know, Iran suffered um, an eight-year war with Iraq where they lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, They're very concerned about instability in Iraq, and they have a vested interest in ensuring that whatever comes out of the post-Saddam era is a government that will not pose a threat to Iran. The army is a reflection of the control that the United States has. It's paid for by the United States. Understand that. We pay their salaries. No one else does, we do. In opposition to them, are the popular militias. These were elements that were formed in 2014, 2015, when the army ran away. Never, never forget that the army, the one we trained, we equipped, we bought, we paid for, ran away from ISIS when they moved on Mosul. They surrendered vast swaths of Iraqi territory and were threatening Baghdad when Ayatollah Sistani stood up, issued a fatwa calling for the people of Iraq to mobilize. And they mobilized by themselves, they mobilized with the assistance of the Iranian government, but mobilized they did and they defeated ISIS. People will say, no, the Americans defeated ISIS. No, we came in later. The popular militias saved Iraq. They saved Baghdad. They saved the Middle East from the black flag of Islamic tyranny being raised over even more cities. And we can't handle that because we don't control that. So what's going on right now in Baghdad, is a conflict of control. Will Baghdad be controlled by either Iraqi national or Iranian control? And I'm talking about people that have a vested interest in the regional stability of Iraq, or it will continue to be controlled by the United States. Even though we no longer occupy Iraq as we used to, we still occupy Iraq. We have thousands of groups in Iraq and the Iraqi government cannot exist without the billions of dollars that we pour in to buy them off. The only thing more corrupt than the Afghan government that collapsed as the Taliban took control is the current Iraqi government. They're all bought and paid for by the United States. And what we're seeing right now is genuine frustration. Unfortunately, money talks. And we may actually see a revolution in Iraq today. Never forget there was an election in Iraq recently. Qadimi didn't win. (laughs) Muqtada al-Sadr won. And they're resisting him taking power. They're resisting democracy. Never forget that. What's going on in Iraq today is the United States of America and its CIA Biden pay for stooges are in opposition to
5: democracy. Scott Ritter, thanks for joining us.
0: That excerpted interview was by George and Gayatri Galloway from their program called Sputnik Orbiting the World on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com and on SoundCloud. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. supports regime change in Cuba. Venezuelan President Maduro rejected the U.S. State Department attempts to discredit in advance elections happening this Sunday. Radio Havana, Cuba.
4: The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reiterated the United States would continue to be committed to supporting those who promote regime change in Cuba. In a statement, Mr. Sullivan lashed out on measures taken by the Cuban government to avoid chaos and destabilization in the country, which on Monday 15th celebrated the restart of the school year face-to-face and the opening of its borders to tourism after 20 months confronting with COVID-19. According to Sullivan, despite the failure of the opposition march called for November 15th, the United States will continue to support those Cubans who search for fundamental freedoms and democratic and prosperous society. The major roadblock to Havana's development is precisely the blockade imposed by Washington more than 60 years ago, tightened by 243 measures adopted under Donald Trump's administration and still remain unchanged by President Joe Biden. In United States cities such as Washington, D.C., New York, and Hartford in Connecticut, demonstrations supported the Cuban Revolution, and their people voiced rejection of the Joe Biden administration's policy
7: towards Cuba. The President of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, rejected on Tuesday statements by the U.S. State Department on the upcoming regional and municipal elections of this Sunday, November the 21st, pointing out that Washington wants to discredit them. The Venezuelan President categorized such comments from the United States as insolent and interventionist, affirming that they are part of the conspiracies constantly carried out by the White House against the democratic processes and internal affairs of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Bolivia. Quote, Already today, a spokesman of the US State Department has come out to make statements against the free and sovereign elections in Venezuela. It is embarrassing. It is shameful how they intend to interfere in internal affairs and disqualify the elections that are being prepared. Unquote. Maduro also denounced the interference actions against Cuba and Bolivia, as well as the attempts to discredit the Nicaraguan elections, and stressed that, quote, once again they failed. They were defeated. Quote, we are sincerely respecting the electoral regulations, calling on the people to vote. Therefore, in the face of this aggression, I call on all Venezuelans to get ready for Sunday, and let's vote for Venezuelan democracy.
0: Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at RadioHC.cu, though the podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6,000, 60, 60 or 6,100. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet, like listeners in Trinidad and Willets, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan, a review of the summit between the leaders of China and the U.S., While the talks were underway, the U.S. Navy and Japanese Defense Forces were conducting a military drill in the South China Sea. Taiwan is rapidly updating and increasing its supply of F-16 fighter jets from the U.S. NHK Japan
3: the United States is looking to use the momentum from this, this week's summit with China to further ease tensions. U.S. President Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping left the virtual meeting with a positive outlook, but without issuing any concrete agreements. Now, Biden hopes new bilateral discussion groups will bring results.
6: It was a good meeting. We got a lot to follow up on. We set up four groups. We're going to get our folks together on a whole range of issues. Good to see you.
3: Biden did not elaborate, but promised an update within two weeks. His national security advisor earlier said the focus will be strategic stability. Jake Sullivan says the president directed the teams towards security, technology and diplomacy. The newly intensified negotiations come as both sides appear far apart on key issues, including trade and human rights. And while Biden and Xi were holding their talks, the U.S. Navy and Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force were conducting a joint drill in the South China Sea. An MSDF official says the exercise on Tuesday was focused on anti-submarine training, which involved tracking a submarine navigating underwater. The drill included destroyers and patrol planes from the two countries. For the first time, an MSDF submarine also took part. It's unusual for the whereabouts and activities of these submarines to be disclosed. China has been building artificial islands to serve as military bases in the South China Sea. Observers say the drill was designed to underscore the Japan-U.S. partnership and its aim of realizing a free and open Indo-Pacific, but also to keep China in check. Taiwan is moving quickly to step up its defense capability with the help of the United States. President Tsai Ing-wen has commissioned Taiwan's first squadron of upgraded F-16 fighter jets. The ceremony took place at Chai Air Base in southern Taiwan. The top American representative in Taiwan, Sandra Oldkirk, attended the event. Washington does not have official diplomatic relations with Taipei. The Air Force's newly commissioned jets are among 141 F 16 fighters being converted into advanced F 16Vs by 2023 with the help of U.S. manufacturer Lockheed Martin. This project shows not only the further development of friendship between Taiwan and the United States, but also our firm commitment to cooperative relations. The upgraded aircraft have advanced radar capable of tracking multiple targets and are equipped with longer-range missiles. Taiwan is also planning to purchase 66 new F-16Vs under a deal approved by former President Donald Trump's administration.
0: Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9.00 p.m. at 7245 and 9865 or on the web at www 3nhkorjp One of my goals in producing the show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening I post a new shortwave report at the website for the show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. This shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.